Hey everyone, it's great to hang out, especially when there's an unexpected rainstorm that just hits, you know, like Florida does, which is always such a delight. Now tonight, I wanted uh, to talk to you about two really fun theology words. Cool? Yeah, like, yes, like big words are so much fun when they're unpacked. So the two words that I wanted to talk about tonight are the words eminence and transcendence. If you're a note-taking kind of person, those would be two words to write down because we've got to keep recircling back to those. So eminence and transcendence. Exciting stuff, right? Cool. All right. Now, eminence, uh, typically, if you have any thoughts on the word eminent at all, like I think of like a war movie where like the, the enemy is eminent, as in like they're coming in close. They're, they're about to strike. So eminence is kind of in that vein. It's about nearness. It's nearness. It's that in a particular time and space, something is perceivable, experienceable, graspable. I checked. Those are all actual words in the dictionary. Okay. For example, we are all presently eminent with one another. We are near one another. Uh, You are sitting in a room with other embodied human beings, and we are together in one place. We are imminent with one another. Now, imminence is different than transcendence. Now, transcendence, you might have heard that word, especially in our modern culture with, uh, with things that come from uh, Eastern transcendental meditation and things like that, like the idea of transcending into a, another plane of existence or um, things like that. Now, that kind of taps into the understanding of what it means to be transcendent in, in this way. That trend, what it means to transcend is to be in beyondness, okay? It's something that is outside of your full perception or experience or grasp. For example, joy. Joy is transcendent. It transcends our circumstances. So when we are in close relational proximity with other people, we can, whether they're friends or family, And most importantly, with God, we can have a joy that transcends whatever the present circumstance we're in because we are near him or near other people. So transcendence is something that is oftentimes tapped into when we're experiencing something that is imminent, something that is near. So they are linked, but they're not the same thing. Now I bring those two words up. So When I'm talking about eminence, I mean nearness. And when I'm talking about transcendence, I mean beyondness. And I know the word beyondness, I I didn't look to verify if that's a real word, um, mainly because I thought it sounded kind of fun to say. So I'm using it either way. Okay, so beyondness. All right. Now, I used to love going to conferences and uh, worship concerts in my free time because, you know, we all have our own version of nerdum, right? And that was mine um, and still is mine. And, uh, And I specifically remember kind of where that started for me when I was... 18, almost 19 years old, I moved some buddies to a, uh, like a weekend long camping worship, worship concert series that was in the mountains of California near where I grew up, kind of over the coast. It was really cool. And we were there on the first night and God had already been kind of revealing to me in that season that I, that I might claim that I believe in him, but I wasn't truly following him. And so that had been already what God was stirring in my heart and just impressing on me. And so then in this space, I have a deep fried Twinkie in my hand because, you know, that's what you do in America, things like that. And it was really tasty, but I felt really greasy after. But that's beside the point. But what is a part of the point was that I was at this, it was a worship set, an acoustic set. Uh, There wasn't any great fanfare about it. It was just chill. But as I was 
just listening and perceiving these lyrics that come straight from the scriptures, from the band that was playing, all of a sudden, God, the transcendent one, the one who defines everything, the one who is so far beyond our imagination that he is called in the Hebrew scriptures, Yahweh, meaning he is. He said, I am. And that is who he is, that, that nothing else defines who he is. He is, and therefore all definition comes from him. Like that makes my head hurt whenever I think about it too much. And it should because I am a finite creature. I don't understand God's transcendence completely. And that's probably a good thing that I don't. But in that moment, for the first time in my life, his transcendence became imminent to me. His beyondness became near to me. And it was really cool. Now, there have been other experiences like that, times when, when I just experienced his presence, his nearness in a very uh, visceral way where I was just overwhelmed, overcome by, by just how incredible he is. And to be honest, I, I wish it happened more often. See, those experiences aren't super consistent for me. Um, sometimes I feel super close to God. Other times I don't. And I, and I share that with you because I'd imagine you probably feel the same way if you follow Jesus from time to time. But whether it's because of sin, whether it's because of distractions, whether it's because, because of different priorities that I have put in front of it, or whether it's all three of them, I, I, and don't actively experience his presence often. And I miss his nearness. And I say that because any of us can experience that. Now I realize that in this room, hopefully, uh, and I assume so that there are those in the room right now who do not follow Jesus and that are present with us. And if that's you, I'm so glad you're here tonight. And this might sound, and then all of the stuff I'm talking about, eminence and transcendence, nearness and beyondness might sound kind of strange, like a strange concept to you. Because what I'm talking about is not just the peaceful feeling that you have when you have a good workout or when you've had a really clean meal or when you've just seen the most incredible, incredible scenic vistas within nature. Now, all of those things are good things. Like they're not bad things. And, but at their best, what we see in the scriptures is those things are what oftentimes referred to as things of common grace, where they are things that God allows for all, any human that is experiencing those things to go, wow, that was really nice. But those things are meant to be just a spiritual foretaste of the true peace, the true goodness that doesn't come by any circumstances, but only comes in the uniqueness of God's presence. Now, for others of us who are in the room right now, though, who do follow Jesus, likely this is, you know what I'm talking about. You have felt those seasons. Maybe you're in that season right now. You're like, it's been so long since I felt the, the nearness of God. He feels so far away. And so with that, we have to ask a few questions. Why, when you don't feel near to God, exactly how far away is he? Okay, do we need to somehow muster our way back into his presence? Do we need to like kind of convince him to come and be close to us? Do we have to check off all the right religious check marks on some list? We need to listen to the right songs, sing them out loud, read the right verses, 
pray the right prayers? Is it about doing the right things to get back to him? Is it like uh, if you ever watch the movie Beetlejuice, like saying his name three times and then he's going to show up and appear? But that begs a bigger question. Is it up to us to make our way back to him in the first place? Or does God have a different intention in mind all along? Now, last week we began our journey in the homecoming series. And we began by talking about the beginning of beginnings, the beginning of the story of humanity. And in that place, in the very beginning in Genesis 1, we begin to see God's creative force beckoning everything into existence by the sheer power of his voice, bringing his presence in the most unlikely of circumstances, his own spirit hovering above the cosmic chaos waters even before anything has been called good. And then later on, after all the good creations have been unearthed, humanity stands in uniqueness and yet humanity rebels against God and decides to move away from his presence rather than near it. And even then, even when when Adam and Eve attempted to hide, God beckoned them. He made the journey to them. Now God continued to desire and to be present with humanity after that moment, after their exodus from the garden. But over and over and over again, humanity continued and continues to choose their own way over his. So he began to reveal himself to particular individuals at different instances. It's not that he was just trying to pick favorites. What he was trying to do was find advocates who would help reveal God's presence to a broken and dying world in desperate need of redemption. Now, unfortunately, throughout Genesis, you get a number of these individuals named out, and some of them have awesome moments, and others of them have really bad moments. But no matter what happens, over and over and over again, humanity does not listen and obey God's voice. He makes himself known. He is present, and yet they rebel against him. Now, eventually, God made himself known to an individual, a guy named Moses. And you might have heard about Moses before. He revealed his presence to Moses through this burning tree bush that had this like transcendent fire about it. And you might have heard this story before, but he tells Moses to go set his chosen people, the, the people of Israel, the Israelites, to be freed from their long enslavement over hundreds of years from Egypt. And, and Moses doesn't want any part of it. He's like, no, I, I can't do that. I, I can't set slaves free. And God essentially tells him, Moses, it's not you that's going to do the work. You're just going to participate with me. But my very presence will set the people free. See, this is what God does. He goes and he breaks the chains of bondage over his chosen people. And the Israelites begin to make their way to the promised land. But on their way, one of the first stops they make is to Mount Sinai. Now, in the ancient world, mountains were a great visual of a place for whichever religion that the different nations would be worshiping. They, they would often look to the mountains as a place where, uh, where the gods met humanity. Okay, so like think of like in Greek mythology, uh, Mount Olympus, which is a real mountain. That It was said that at the top of Mount Olympus is where Zeus and the rest of the pantheon of gods lived. Now, God uses that same 
ancient visual, but repurposes it beautifully towards what is actually true towards characters over and over again throughout the story of the scriptures. And so here, Moses brings the Israelites to the base of this mountain, Mount Sinai, so that they could have a talk. And when, when Moses tells the people that God's actually issuing an invitation for all of them to go up to his presence, they're like, no, like we, we, we can't go close. And then you go, you go, you tell us what he says and we'll do that stuff because it sounds pretty scary to me. And so they're, they're cool being kind of in God's presence, but not too close. They don't want to be there. So they stay at the base camp. But then over and over again, Moses goes back and forth to have multiple com- conversations with, with God at the top of the mountain. But one time when he ascends the mountain, he brings along with him 72 elders and they go up to the mid-mountain point. And it's crazy. This, this is absolutely crazy. Until I read, read this again, I mean, I just completely forgot that this is even in the scriptures. At the mid-mountain point, something absolutely unbelievable happens, not just to Moses, but to the entire 72 of their elders. This is from Exodus 24, verses 9 through 11. So it says, then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. And they saw the God of Israel. What would you be thinking of them? I didn't know we were getting this. Like, like what? Oh. And there was under his feet as if it were pavement of sapphire stone. like the very heaven for clearness. Sapphire stone, that's a pavement of clearness. I don't even know what that possibly looks like. But this is the kind of imagery that's constantly defined in the scriptures of what it looks like to be in the very presence of God. Things that just don't make sense together always happen. Look in the book of Revelation, the tree of life that we talked about last week. It's on both sides of the river. One tree one tree, both sides of the river. How does that play out? I don't know, but it's incredible. And that's the awe that these elders were in in this moment. And he, God, did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel, but they beheld God and they ate and they drank. They literally see the presence of God and they get to not just witness him quickly, but they sit down for a meal in his presence. What did they talk about? I, you know, like, like, wow. Like, do you pull up your, uh, your like introductory questions for whenever you're hanging out with somebody for the first time? And like, what's your favorite creation you've ever made? You know, like, what do you do in that moment? And so God calls for Moses after the meal's apparently over to leave the elders from mid-mountain point and to go up, make the rest of the journey to the mountaintop alone. And he goes up into the clouds. And for 40 days, he's in the presence of God. I mean, a mealtime with God sounds pretty incredible. 40 days in his presence at the top. And we don't know the fullness of what this like almost month and a half looked like for him. So it's impossible to fully speculate all that might have unpack- been unpacked there. But we do get some windows in in Exodus 25. And so if you look at Exodus 25, verse 8 and 9. I think this is absolutely cool. It 
It says, God says to Moses, and let them make me a sanctuary. Pause. That shouldn't sound too weird, right? In, the, in, the, in various ancient cultures that you would make a temple, a sanctuary for whoever you worship, right? That, that was a normal thing. But here's what's so insane. This next part. That I may dwell in their midst. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furnishings, so shall you make. So God wants a sanctuary. But why? See, in the surrounding cultures that, went, that, that built these sanctuaries, these temples for their deities, they were because the gods needed humanity. Okay, so if you look at the, um, the ancient myths of the Mesopotamians and their creation account, their god, their uh, chief god, created humanity because he needed somebody to do his work for him. He needed food and drink and worship. That was the norm. In other words, the gods weren't self-sufficient. They were dependent on humanity, providing them food and offerings and sacrifices. That's not what we get from Yahweh. What's his intention? That I may dwell in their midst. You see how crazy that would have sounded? You want to dwell with us? I mean, the the Israelites had just been in in oppression to the Egyptians for hundreds of years, watching the way that they worshiped. And here is the true God, the only true God saying, I want to dwell with you. He wants to go on the journey with his people. One time I was moving uh, halfway across the country. I was like 21 and I was moving from California where I am from to Kansas City, Missouri, where I was going to do an internship at a church. And so I was getting, I was getting ready to move. And my dad, he, he goes, hey, Danny, um, I would love to make the trip with you. And so he said he would uh, help pay for the gas and uh, hotels and food. And he would also help with the driving. He did all of those except for the driving part. I drove almost the entire way by myself. Uh, And he was just so content in the passenger seat. We made some stops along the way. We took a Sork Route 66. It was sweet. I don't remember where we ate. I don't remember what music we listened to. I remember at one point we watched the Goofy movie in our hotel room one night. But most importantly, we were just with one another. My dad wanted to be near to me. It turned out to be the last time that we would ever go on a journey, just the two of us. Because a few years later, he was dead. My dad wanted to be near to me. There's something really cool about that, right? About nearness. When somebody wants to be near to you. God's nearness is so sweet. Now, sometimes we state something, though, to counter this that's only partially true. We say that God cannot be in the presence of sinful humans. He is absolutely perfectly holy and righteous. 
and we cannot come near to him in a rebellious state. Absolutely true. We'll talk about this more next week when we talk about the temple. But here's what's crazy. When we cannot make our way back to him, he is, as we just sang in that last song, Waymaker, he is the way maker. He makes his way to us. In and of ourselves, we have no ability to enter into his presence. And so he said, okay, I'll, I'll bring it to you. I'll bring home to you. So Moses then gets these fairly comprehensive design plans for what this sanctuary, this dwelling place would look like. He gives clarity on right before this about a list of supplies that they need to go uh, get from all of the people in, uh, that are Israelites. And, and he offers all of this clarity, all, of this, all these specifics. In fact, for almost the rest of Exodus, it is like just continual design patterns on how the, the tabernacle should be orchestrated and built. Now, here's the thing. The sanctuary would be exactly that. It would be a tabernacle. Now, a tabernacle is different than a temple. A temple is something that, a place of permanence. But a tabernacle is literally a tent. It's a tent. It's a temporary dwelling place that goes up and comes down and can be moved along. I think that's such a beautiful image. Because one, that's what the Israelites were doing. They were going in mass, thousands of Israelites moving across the desert, making their way to the promised land. And God said, I want to go camping with you. Build me a tent. I'm in. I want to go on the journey. Now, I love how the tabernacle is described in uh, this storybook Bible that I recently got Asher. It's called the Kingdom of God Bible Storybook. Um, it's so good, not just for kids. So, so, so good. This is just the Old Testament. There's a New Testament one as well that goes with it. So I wanted to share with you this. You don't have to read it up there. I'll read it out loud just so you know. It's kind of small. I think I'd be the only one that could read it because I'm so close. Okay. All right. Ever since Adam and Eve were sent out of Eden, there had been a great distance between people and God. But God's desire was to live with his people and build his kingdom among them. God would not be a distant king, but a king who was near to lead them and to guide them. So God gave Moses instructions to build a tabernacle, a big tent where the Israelites could worship God. When the tabernacle was complete, a great cloud covered it and the glory of God filled it. God would dwell among his people again. The tabernacle was placed in the very center of Israel's camp. During the night, God revealed himself as a cloud, great cloud over the tabernacle and at night as a great pillar of fire. Now God chose Aaron, the brother of Moses, to be Israel's high priest. Moses anointed Aaron and his sons to serve God as priests in the tabernacle. And from then on, their relatives from the tribe of Levi would represent the people before God and offer sacrifices for them. Everything in the tabernacle was to be holy, which means set apart. Nothing unclean could enter into the holy place. The priests dedicated the tabernacle and offered sacrifices to God. Then fire came down from the Lord and consumed the offerings and God's glory appeared to the people. 
Now the tabernacle reminded Israel of the days when Adam and Eve could walk freely with God. There was this large lampstand with seven lights that symbolized the tree of life that was in Eden. The fragrances smelled like a garden. Many of the details were made of gold, making it feel like a royal throne room. This served as a beautiful reminder of God's desire to walk with his people once again. The priests were called to take care of the tabernacle, just as Adam and Eve were called to take care of the Garden of Eden. And the tabernacle also taught Israel that their sin caused a separation between them and God. They couldn't walk freely into God's presence. There's a huge veil that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle because this is where God's glory would dwell. The curtains and the veil had had imagery of cherubim on them, reminding Israel of the cherubim that guarded Eden. The tabernacle was meant to be this portable signpost to the Eden ideal of God's presence with his people. You remember that day when humanity didn't have to fear? We didn't have anxiety. There was no disease or war. That day in the garden, when you had perfect intimacy with one another and with your creator, that's the ideal. And so, It was filled with all of these wondrous signs. You had the Ark, the Ark of the Covenant, which was the sign of the merciful and just rule of God by containing the Ten Commandments in the Torah that was given by God to Moses. And it was put in this Ark, this square box. It was to remind us that our true home is a home when we listen and obey God's words. And then there was this bread of the presence. And it would be the sign of provision and fellowship with God, reminding us that our true home is fellowship and friendship and nearness with God. Then you had the lampstand, which was this menorah, and it was a sign of the life and light of God that comes with his presence, reminding us that our true home is when we are walking in light, life and freedom with him. The tabernacle was a place of sacrifice, substitution, where sin and uncleanliness was atoned for, reminding us that our true home is a place of grace. Now, the tabernacle had three layers to it. So if we go back to that first graphic, the other one, that one right there. Okay. So the big temporary wall around the tent, that was called the outer courts. Now, the outer courts was a place where the nation could come to worship. I mean, imagine that. The, 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 way that it was, the way that the encampment for the Israelites was even structured was that this was the center of everything. And then they went out this way and they went out this way around it because at the very center of everything was God's presence with his people. He didn't say, put me off far away because y'all are knuckleheads, right? He said, I'm going to be right in the middle of you, to remind you. And so the entire nation was able to go into the outer courts. So in effect, they could experience his presence there. Just like how at Mount Sinai, the entire nation experienced God's presence from a distance at the bottom of the mountain. Now, the elders approached the mid-mountain point to witness God's presence and have that incredible meal with him. 
And this is similar to how all of the priests would be allowed into the holy place, the main tent in the center. And so then when we go into this main, this main tent in the center, this is called the holy place. All of it is a holy place. But then there's this curtain right here. And you see the cherubim. There's an angelic being that is standing there, just like at the, at the entrance and exit of Eden. There was a cherubim that was placed there to constitute the separation between God's divine ideal and where humanity had fallen. But the, whole, the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant, God's very presence, his footstool was located. Just like how Moses went up to the very top of the mountain alone. And so over and over again, we see God's nearness on display, but at varied levels, right? The people could go one place. The priest could go one place. The high priest could go one place. Now, in Exodus 40, we get the, the, the moment when the building project is finally done. It took that long and that many amount of chapters just to kind of go through the plans and, the, um, and all of the execution to get this tabernacle built. And then in Exodus 40, verses 34 through 38, the, the scroll of Exodus ends this way. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not even able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now here's what's cool. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. Oh, it's time for us to go. All right, let's go. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they didn't set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day and fire was in it by night. And in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. Now, I think that's really beautiful. And here's why. Because if you read the rest of the wanderings of the Israelites, they are the most inconsistent, budge, unfaithful, unjust, like, like, like they mess it up every which way. And yet in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys, he was present with them. There were some difficult, intense moments on the journey, but he remained present with them through it all. See, the glory of Yahweh, his nearness, his presence, his glory revealed is what happens when the transcendent one, when the beyond one of the cosmos who existed before time was a thing, figure that one out, entered into our time and space and became near. Now, this doesn't mean that, that all of a sudden God exclusively became in one place at one time doesn't work that way. God is omnipresent. He is present in all space, throughout the cosmos, in all time, because he's that fascinating and incredible. But there are these moments that we see when, when home comes back to humanity and he is present. His nearness becomes super focused in one place at one time. When he is so abundantly clear, God with us. Now, this is why on our, even our homecoming graphic has this, this kind of spectral mist, this cloud. That's to remind us of the glory of the Lord, the nearness of God that was present through a cloud within their presence with them. That God has come to bring home to us when we had no ability to make our way home to him. 
Now, with the tabernacle, we have the outer courts, we have the holy place, and we have the holy of holies, right? That's beautiful, right? But isn't that still far less than ideal? I mean, wouldn't you kind of hope that what we were reading in this is that, 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 that there was a queue line set up and everyone could go into the Holy of Holies and experience and worship God and, and be in his direct presence. I mean, wouldn't that be a little bit more ideal, what we'd hope for? Absolutely. God thought so too. And so in the first pages of John's gospel account, we discover what God was willing to endure to ensure that the less than ideal would not last forever. And so in John chapter one, verse 14, it says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Do you sense any familiar language from where we were just at in Exodus? Two of the words that popped up in my mind was dwelt and glory. Now, the word dwelt is super important here because that is a translation from the Greek word that most literally translates to tabernacled. So the word became flesh and tabernacled, set up shop, went camping with us. God set up camp with us through his word. The one who had come to be known as Emmanuel. God with us. The one who is, according to this, glory as of the only son from the father. The very glory of Yahweh present with us. The beyondness of God taking on the frailty of human flesh to be near us. Jesus, the true and rightful king the one who would go on to become the true sacrifice so that all who would follow him would discover that they aren't held out in the outer courts or beyond the camp because they're too broken, too messed up, too ugly, too twisted. That he said, wherever you're at, I am coming to set up camp with you, to redeem and to restore you, to make you new, to adopt you into the forever family of God, knowing that that's going to cost me my own life. This is what God would do to set up shop with us. That's the true tabernacle. Jesus. Now, if you go back to the story of the Israelites, you discover and unfold over and over again just how forgetful and unfaithful they are, right? Yet over and over again, God seeks to camp out with them. Maybe you are currently in a season where your relationship with Jesus is so sweet. His nearness is just awesome and present. Maybe it's not. Either way, no one trusts this. Your perception of his nearness does not dictate the reality of his nearness. In other words, even when I don't feel it, that's where you are. Even when I, even when I am trying to outrun you, you're near. Now, our forgetfulness, our sinfulness, 
our dis- ability to be distracted by so many things, to set priorities above drawing near to him and abiding with him. Those are all realities. And what those can affect is our sense of his nearness. Those convolute the relationship. It's like we're putting up our own veil where Jesus has already torn the real one. But it doesn't change his actual, where he's actually at. We didn't, we didn't coax him to draw near to us in the first place. So we can't outrun him now. And so what's not changing is God wants to be near you and me and the people sitting next to you. God's desire is to be near us. And he wants us to rest in his nearness. But what does that look like? How do we live in that? Years ago, uh, I heard about um, a brother, his name, uh, he went by brother Andrew, and he was a monk in a monastery in France in the 1600s. And uh, he met with a author for a sequence of letters and uh, conversations that he actually said, you better never publish this. And then after he died, he published it anyway. Uh, and, um, and brother Andrew um, helped guide what became a book that's very well sold over the last 400 years of existence called Practicing the Presence of God. And what's so cool about this letter, is th- this book, it's super short, but what, what's so important about it is that where it came from was that Brother Andrew was approached by a ton of people throughout, uh, throughout France who would draw near him because they heard that of his ability to practice the presence of God. Now, here's what's crazy. He was a monk, but he didn't go to seminary. He was a monk, but he wasn't known for his teaching ability. He was a dishwasher in the kitchen at the monastery. And what he discovered when he surrendered his life fully to Jesus was that the daily life with Jesus is a daily surrender of your life fully to Jesus. And not just the daily reality, but a moment-by-moment reality. Surrendering every conversation, surrendering every work location, surrendering every next task on your to-do list to Jesus. Doing it not for yourself, but for his glory. But not to earn his presence, but to realize that he is already present. And so he was able to wash dishes and experience God's presence completely. Like, can you imagine that? Like doing the monotonous realities of life, but that's your entire life. Like, I hate being bored. Do you guys like being bored? Anybody love being bored? Not any of us, right? But to be bored and yet content in his nearness. Because he's already drawn us near. So he called it practicing the presence of God. He wasn't a master of it. He was learning it. But he was it something where every time he forgot God's presence, all of a sudden he started beating himself up over it. He simply confessed that to God. God, I was getting distracted by my own thoughts here. What are you up to? That was just super convicting stuff for me because this is really not my, my forte. But as I was worshiping and we were worshiping together, all I could think of is why is it my forte? Because not because God is at present, but because I'm not doing it. I'm bad at it. And so I don't do it. I'm bad at it. So I go and do other things that I'm better at. But it doesn't change the value of simply being with him 
in every moment, as you study the word of God, as you spend time in prayer, fasting, worship, as you spend time washing the dishes or doing whatever you do in your career field, whether you're up on the stage, whether you're playing an instrument, serving donuts, that whatever we do, we can practice the presence of God. I don't know, that's challenging to me. And so I want to invite the band up. And I just want to encourage you with this. Wherever you are, wherever you have been, God invites you near. When you could not come near to him, he has decided to make his way to come near to you. And if you're here tonight and you do not know Jesus, know this is the invitation of the creator of the cosmos, the one who is beyond everything. He desires you to partner with you, to adopt you into his family as a son or daughter, to call you his very own, to say you are home with me. That the God of the universe, the true transcendent one, is imminent. And so I would love to pray for you wherever you're at, wherever you're at the journey. Because I truly believe that God right now is doing something with his nearness. There is spaces of beautiful revival newness of life happening all over the globe right now. Not just in Asbury, but all over. And it's really cool to watch. But I don't want to just watch it. And I don't just want a temporary feeling to just feel better. I want Jesus. And I want Jesus for you. Because he isn't a means to the end. He is He is the end and he is the journey. So would you pray with me? Father, I lift up every person in this building right now. Every son and daughter who needs to be reminded that you want to draw near to us. Every person riddled with doubt, unsure if you truly are present, if you're even real unsure of themselves and beating themselves up because I should be better at this stuff by now. I know that's where I am so often, even tonight. Shouldn't I be better at this stuff? But yet you aren't looking for us to beat ourselves up. You're looking to simply have us transfixed by the person and work of Jesus, dwelling upon his majesty, his glory, his wonder. And so Lord, I pray that we would practice the presence of you. That we would want not just a feeling, but that we would want you. And then our lives would be ever changed because of it. We give you all the praise, the honor, and the glory because we know you are at work even when we don't feel it. So Jesus, then we pray. Amen.